This is a house of learned doctors. Doctor, 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 doctor. Here we are. 54. Episode 54. Brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons. The logo right there. There you go. Yep, that one right there. That's 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 the people you need to find. I, it's all jacked up, but anyways, um, so we figured. Uh, I was talking to Travis like two weeks ago before our episode with Chris last week, uh, and wanted to talk about some Nido because apparently there's there's a good bit of misinformation floating on around out there. Um, so yeah. we figured we we clarify some stuff. So we have yeah. Travis Wyman and Dr. Dale Porsche. Uh, Dr. Wyman and Dr. Porsche. So. Doctor. <clears throat> Doctor. 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 Um, I'm smoking a Liga Bravada number nine. Yeah. Doble. My man. I'm smoking the Nova Platinum Batch. I personally smoke anything I have a crack pipe so um, that's, I'm good. <laughs> that's good it is South Florida thank you <laughs> yeah I'm not smoking anything either because I'd rather not in, end up in the hospital with anaphylaxis so <laughs> that's usually a good thing sir usually yes when oh, asthma yeah. and allergies collide Travis is like bubble boy kind of yeah I'm allergic to everything, including allergy medicine. So, <laughs> I'm allergic That's to my rough. allergies. <laughs> That's rough, sirs. It, it can be, yeah. I'm allergic to my own snot. I'm actually allergic to different types of cut grass, and I had asthma as a kid, and it kind of went away. But I grew up on a horse farm, and in between seasons, we grew alfalfa. So my life was hell. <laughs> I had good hay. Hey, yeah, Peter. Legitimate. Very good. Oh, but. Um, so, Travis, for people who may not be aware of what you do and sort of how what you do ties into NIDO and what we're talking about, can you give us the rundown? Sure. So, um, I've never really gone into a lot of detail as to what I do for a job, which probably speaks a little bit about what I do for a job. <laughs> um, but basically though, in, in a nutshell, he's a nerd. That's what you do. He's very much a nerd, yes. He's an arms dealer. <laughs> um, I, I know we breezed over, you know, I am a doctor of microbiology and molecular genomics. I got my PhD in that from Emory University. Um, more specifically, I work in molecular genomics, doing designing molecular assays for the detection of genomics. I'm questioning on that. Is that a word, genomic? Genomics is a word. Yes. It's the guys that bake the cookies right in the little tree. And all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> those, those, those are the those are elfonics because they're Good. people else. <laughs> um, Dr. Wyman's minions. Yes. Uh, <laughs> We design and develop assays for detection of viruses, bacteria, um, and then put them to use for samples. Bobby, so, 
online. Pardon? Are you allowed to say that online assay? I am allowed to say that online and assay. Yes. PG related, PG rated podcast. Yes. Okay. Um, and the reason I brought up with Justin this, you know, this roundtable discussion idea was because, as he said, there's of late been a lot of talk about NIDO, and it has sort of the technology and the ability to test for NIDO has outpaced the science of our understanding of NIDO, really. So people are start to do, starting to do open interpretation of things that their interpretations are mistaken and they're making a lot of bad guesses and putting those bad guesses out as probable fact or likely fact. So I wanted to approach this from one, my end as an actual molecular biologist with an understanding of how these tests work and also my understanding of how viruses, you know, behave and how we look at them in a more scientific setting. And I wanted to bring Dale in from the veterinary medicine side because, you know, having a vet who sees this type of thing and Dale isn't just like a vet for dogs and cats. He's an actual exotic veterinarian. You know, I have consulted with Dale many a time on exotic stuff. Dale performed surgery on my gray band to remove a tumorous kidney. So when I say that Dale is a good veterinarian in terms of herb understanding, I'm not just blowing smoke as, you know, I just found this random vet. Dale is a solid guy. And so two different doctors, two different scientific understandings of the virus to try and help people have a better grip and understanding of what it is we're more likely dealing with rather than this hype scare terror tactic that I see going on a lot of. Burn your house down. I was just going to say, and you know, Travis is the kid that you sat behind in science and did this, you know, copying down his answer. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> I love it. It's awesome. Stealing all the recipes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> multifaceted. Um, I can tell you, do you want me to just start a little bit and tell you my experience and then Travis can jump in? Yeah. Okay. So I raised ball pipe as a hobby. I started in 2007. So I've been in about 13 years. So when I first started out and people would bring me ball pythons, chondros, all that stuff all the time and say, hey, my snake has a respiratory infection. Can you give me antibiotics? And when I first started, there was not this technology. And Travis briefly talked about it. Um, the tests are running right now on these are called PCRs, where they're basically looking for pieces of the RNA of the virus. So we didn't have those available. So the only thing we had was a culture swab and sensitivity. And so early on, I would encourage these people to culture the RIs um, for bacteria because that's what we were treating. So we'd send out a culture and I'd tell you nine out of 10 times it'd come back um, a bacteria called Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And it typically is resistant to most, most antibiotics, but it was sensitive to amicacin, genomycin, and usually Batril or gen enrofloxacin. So that's what people would always request that. And in my head, I go, 
man, I could culture this bacteria in almost nine out of 10 snakes mouth, normal snakes. I could culture that bacteria out of most of the water bowl or certainly in their container. So why are some snakes getting sick? Why are they getting the respiratory infections and some not? In my head, I thought there is, has to be an virus that's causing this that we just don't know. About. So in probably early 90s, late 90s, 2000s, paramyxovirus was huge in the, the, the world, but there really weren't great tests for it. So then um, when the nidovirus thing came out and we actually have testing for it, whenever I have personally a snake come in with a respiratory infection, I will encourage the owners to test for that first. Because if that is something, it doesn't matter the antibiotics we throw at it. And again, it may have a secondary bacterial infection, um, but the base cause is the virus. So that's what I was finding out. I always was kind of suspicious of that, but now we're kind of finding out that it is a lot of times, in fact, the case. Do you want to add anything to that, Travis? Um, no, not. I mean, that's that's a very succinct history. I can add, you know, I can build off of it as to explaining what PCR is. Yes, please. If we'd like to jump, you know, yeah, that far into it, or, you know, if we have questions just from there, then I can feel them to start with, and then we can progress along as we need. Travis will kind of confirm this, and I always get questions all the time. So you, you said it was that the test was positive. What does that mean? So if the PCR test is positive, it means that they actually found pieces of that RNA for that virus in the sample. So there should be zero false positives. If you have a PCR test and it's positive, it's positive. However, on the other side, let's say I swabbed a snake, but it was not shedding the virus, or at that time it was not ill. And I think all of us know this from the COVID testing that's going on now. Everybody knows, hey, I was exposed to my neighbor who had COVID, so I ran down and got a fast thing, and they did a swab, and they tested me, and they said I'm negative. Does that mean I'm negative? No, it doesn't. It just means you were not shedding the virus at the time they took the swab. Three, four days from now, a week from now, you absolutely could be positive shedding the virus. That's the same exact thing that we see with snakes. Um, you can take and swab a snake. It's negative. Fantastic. My snake's negative, right? Well, maybe not. Um, if you tested it a month from now, it's negative. A month from then, it's negative. Then I think you could safely say your snake is probably negative. However, one single negative test does not mean you're negative. It just means that the RNA from that virus was not found in the test. Well, if I can real quick, just for the layman's that I know are going to be listening and watching, like such as myself. So in the past, you had a particular type of bacteria that was commonly found in damn near every snake that you swabbed. Yeah. You would, something that could be cured with antibiotics. Yeah. And now, is this particular bacteria something that is naturally found in all reptilian mouths, or is this something that is indicative of one region that we've got in the pet trade or whatever that has caused this? So that's a great question. And really, it can be found in almost all the mouths. So what typically I would do was not stick the swab in the mouth, but actually stick it down their trachea or windpipe. And when a snake, you hold it, you can see that windpipe opens up. When it opens up and they have that green gooby stuff in there, I stick that swab in there, take it, stick it in there. And again, nine times out of 10, it comes back Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is absolutely a bacteria that can be found in snakes' mouths. So then the question was, well, why is this snake got it down in the lungs? Not only mouth, but down the lungs. And my suspicion was always that something is suppressing the immune system, whether it be bad husbandry or a virus, something is suppressing that immune system 
that allows the snake who has that normal bacteria floating around in his mouth. Now that bacteria is not just floating around the mouth, but actually down into the lungs and down actually into the respiratory system of the animal. Yeah. And building off of what Dale is saying there. So from an infectious disease standpoint, Pseudomonas, Pseudomonas aeruginosa is, it's a ubiquitous bacteria. It's all over the place. Um, it's very, very commonly found, you know, in your sink. So in your water bowls, it likes water a lot. Um, and in and of itself, Pseudomonas aeruginosa is not terribly dangerous, but it can be very problematic in an immunocompromised situation. So um, one place in humans that it's a real problem is cystic fibrosis patients because their lungs do not function at proper capacity and start to fill with mucus, then the pseudomonas can colonize that mucus and become a problem and develop further lung damage issues. So the fact that Dale has been seeing these high incidence of pseudomonas and potentially at higher titers could be an indication that, that something is there allowing the pseudomonas to grow and it's the pseudomonas that's becoming the major problem the same way the pseudomonas becomes a major problem in CF patients. Yeah. Okay. So here, here's what I would tell you. So this is a, a quick little thing. So um, I use a lab called Research, Research Associates Lab and it's in um, Texas. Um, so I've been using that and I like them because the turnaround time, I literally send it to them, I FedEx assemble to them. I have the result in my email that afternoon. The reason I like that is because then it allows you to act. You can tell the client which way to go. I do not like labs and Travis will speak more to this um, than I can tell you the, the thing, but RNA is something that is very time sensitive. Meaning if I have a little bit of RNA on my swab and I take three, four, five days sent it to the lab, it's very possible that they miss it simply because that RNA can degrade very quickly, quicker than DNA does. But if I have a one day turnaround, I like it. So by the same thing, I'm recommending if you want to send it to a lab, get it to a lab overnight because the longer you take, the longer chance um, or the better chance that you have a false negative. And that is because RNA can degrade fairly rapidly and the myxovirus, the nidovirus, and the arenavirus, which BOA people call IBD, um, are all RNA viruses. And so that is why you got to get it to the lab quick. They got to read it quick. If it sits around the lab for five, six, seven days, it's very likely that you get a false negative. Yes. And these culture test kits that, that we buy online or that we get from a veterinarian, is there anything that would compromise the sample in terms of shipping? Like, should we, you know, maintain a particular temperature with hot or cold packs? Or is it just kind of, it's... So here, here's what I would tell you. They actually have, um, they have fluid that actually can preserve RNA. However, they're finding uh, that, again, quick handling is an important thing. The culture swabs typically that you order um, and then you put it in that little agar thing, um, that little gel, that is to grow bacteria, is not for RNA extraction. So typically what I do, I take a sterile cotton swab, I swab it in the oral cavity, 
for at least 20 seconds, making sure that I'm getting a good sample. Then I put it in a sterile vacutainer with no, no additive in it. I cut it off and again, making sure I don't touch the tip so I don't contaminate it, put it in there, take it down to the local FedEx shop and make sure it's there overnight. It costs about $45. And the panel that I typically run when people wanna run it, they call their, their Boyd panel and it's 55 or $60. And it tests for all three, paramyxovirus, nidovirus, and the arena virus. And so all three from one swab and for a cost of about 55, 60 bucks. And plus you have to get it there. But to me, it's a good deal for the amount of information you get. Yeah, awesome. sounds like it. Yeah, and I agree with Dale on that sampling method. I mean, there are certain specialty swabs that you can buy. They are expensive. There are certain uh, mixes that you can buy. Like there's viral transport media, but again, that that costs like eighty to a hundred bucks a tube. So it's a little bit outside of what most hobbyists are able to spend on top of things. Um, to add for preservation, as, as Dale noted, RNA is very unstable compared to DNA. So when you're packing that tube away in the FedEx package, it would not hurt to add a cold pack just to help keep it cool because the warmer it gets, the faster it's going to degrade. Right. RNA is more like your crazy cousin, a little bit unstable. Yes. <laughs> or like your better cousin. So it's almost the opposite of it's almost the opposite of bacteria where you know the hot and moist causes production. The hot and moist in a viral sample is going to degrade it faster. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The hot and moist for a bacteria is those are the conditions that the bacteria like to grow in. The, the viruses they don't have anything to grow in on that Q-tip. That swab, right? So you're just exposing them to conditions that are they're averse to, not optimal. Yeah. Awesome. This is a story. Um, a client of mine had purchased a few animals from multiple people, and they came in for having a respiratory issue. So I suggested to him. And typically, I do the swab. I put it in the tube. I fill out the paperwork, then I give it to my client and say, you go to the FedEx shop and send us something because I don't have the time to do it with every sample. Gets there overnight. But this young man, they all tested positive for NIDA. He had three or four. So um, we ended up euthanizing animals because he did have more snakes in his collection. We were concerned about them getting it. Um, and the animals were not doing well, so we euthanized them. He then ordered an animal off of a charity... Um, auction that he had on Facebook and just because he had had a few animals that tested positive he, and it was a $2,500 animal I believe that he purchased so he brings that animal in me and he goes animal showing no sign let's just test it. I go you're absolutely right I would test it just because knowing your luck you know probably gonna see something so he swabbed it sent it off for a test it comes back NIDO positive but at this time it was asymptomatic so I told him I go look do you have a friend? Do you have some place you can put the snake not in with your collection to make sure that you don't transfer this? And he said, yeah, my mom will let me put it there for you know a couple of weeks, a month. And I said, let's recheck the snake in a month. So he brings the snake back in. One month later, 
swab it, send it off the same exact lab, exact lab, comes back positive a second time. So at this point, he had paid $2,500, I believe, for the snake in a charity auction. It was a really nice, um, I think, pastel yellow belly piebald or, or female. Um, and so I told him, I go, look, one of my technicians who has no snakes would be interested in taking it. I told her that just as a kind of project, I will take it and let's follow it. So he said, that's fine. Rather than euthanize it, he gave it to my tech. At that time, it was about 130 gram snake. Six months later, she brings it back in for a recheck, weighed about six, 700 grams. I go, man, what are you feeding this thing? Oh, he's small rat. Fantastic. Still asymptomatic. I did not retest at that point. Almost a year later, she says, hey, my snakes really get big. So I go, bring it in, let's recheck it. So it's a female ball python and now weighs 1,670 grams. Okay, let's retest again. We retest, sent it to the same lab. It came back negative. Now, here's what Dale Porsche, this is my theory. And, um, you know, again, we don't have a lot of information. I think it's a lot like the COVID virus in people. You're going to get certain people who are going to be exposed and that are going to get it, become sick, and maybe even die. You're going to get some people that are going to get exposed, are going to get ill, and get better. The third subset, you may have some asymptomatic people that will test positive. They test positive, but they get over it without showing any clinical illness. Now, just to follow this through and take it a couple steps further, she only has one snake at home. So I took one of my males, one of my male pides, I gave it to her, but I swabbed it first to make sure it was negative. It came back um, paramyxa, nido, and arenavirus negative. So I gave it to her. We're going to breed them. I want to see if, in fact, there is any vertical transmission. And vertical transmission means from mom to baby. You go, well, how heck could that happen? These snakes lay eggs. That's absolutely true. However, we do know that in birds and chickens, there are some viruses, um, the avian leukosis virus, that gets transmitted vertically, meaning from mom, it gets transmitted via the oviduct, the thing that kind of makes the inside mm -hmm. of you, and the albumin. These baby chicks are born with a leukemia virus, and it is spread vertically. So my whole thought process, let's breed this, see if there's any vertical transmission. I'm going to test every baby. I'm going to swab the outside shell of the eggs. I'm going to swab the vents of both mom and dad after eggs and breeding has taken place. So just to follow through, because honestly, I don't know that anybody's doing that research. And Travis and I do talk a lot on the phone. <clears throat> Real answer is, if you think you have all the answers, you don't. And I don't think anybody does. Kind of like the coronavirus, the COVID-19 thing evolving in people. We're learning more as we go. And um, I'll, I'll tell you more, but I don't want to kind of dominate this thing by talking. Um, but I do think that, like Travis and I talked about, not every snake that gets it is a dead snake. Not every snake that gets it is even going to show clinical signs. However, if you have a snake that is clinical, the testing positive, I would get it out of my collection, isolate it maybe talk about euthanizing um, if it wasn't your valuable breeding animal, you know, rather than treating it. But that's something that each individual has to make a determination on, along with if you have a vet or somebody that will help you out. Well, we definitely have to come back to this because that was one of my questions for this evening about, you know, vertical transmission and eggs. And so we definitely have to keep talking about that later. Well, that's, well, yeah. That's I want to jump on that right now, actually. Yeah. Um, so in by reading on this. There are papers out there about NIDO. If you go digging into PubMed, you can find them. And in at least one of those papers, eggs from a NIDO-positive female 
were allowed to be carried to term, incubated, and hatched. They were incubated in an incubator, so they had been separated from the mother for 60 days. The remaining albumin fluid from those eggs was tested and came back NIDO positive. Now, the babies, when they were swabbed, tested NIDO negative. But as Dale said, are they truly NIDO negative or are they just NIDO negative because they're not actively expressing and amplifying the virus at that time? So this definitely feeds into Dale's comment about how we need to, you know, better research this specific corner of the disease. Because I've heard a lot of people say, you know, well, it, it can't be vertically transmitted because we don't really see that. But, you know, we see it in chickens. We see it in a couple of the mammalian viruses from this same family. And we do now have at least one study that shows that the virus is detectable in the eggs after babies hatch out of them. So, and, and I had a um, young lady who worked in my office and was pregnant, eight months pregnant, when this whole corona COVID thing hit the, the wall, so to speak. So I kind of did some research. And now they're saying for humans, um, in humans, there is about a 2 to 3% vertical transmission rate, meaning women that had COVID, do their babies come out with COVID? 2 to 3% of the time. So certainly not a large percentage. But I believe, absolutely believe that the vertical transmission is possible. And a lot of people don't know this, but the albumin is the white part of the egg. And um, it, it's, it's what basically have a baby embryo in there. They're not breathing fluid, but that albumin goes in and out of their mouth and all that. And that is something that absolutely, if it's in the albumin, logically you think, well, gosh, could it be transmitted to snake? And my, my guess is it probably could. But and I do not have that and if somebody proves me wrong later i will not say that i know everything because science teaches us all the time but just when you think you know everything you don't so now those the travis those eggs that you were speaking of they swabbed the outside of the egg after being laid and they swabbed this the neonate after it hatched was the egg swabbed at hatching and was the inside of the egg swabbed as well like was it only on the outside they didn't swab the outside of the egg they, oh, okay. swabbed, they, they took a sample of the fluid from the inside of the egg after the eggs had hatched. Okay. That fluid tested positive, which okay. would indicate that there were viable virus RNAs in that fluid. Just live in that whole 60 days or whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, maybe we should you know back up a little bit just so I can explain how the PCR tests work. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. And Everybody. Basically, <laughs> um, basically the way these ones work is they're what's known as real-time quantitative PCR reactions. So you monitor them in real time and it can give you a fairly good estimate of the number of copies of the virus that are present. And the way this works is you've got two small pieces of DNA that match to the genetic code of the virus. And they're a certain distance apart. And you run them through a process where they bind to the DNA of the virus or the RNA of the virus. And then they copy that segment over. And then you heat up the thing and it causes it to that complex to disassemble 
and then you cool it down again and the complex reassembles. And in some cases you get the RNA annealing back with your two little copy pieces. And in other cases, you have what's known as a reporter, which falls right between them. And when the copy pieces run over that reporter, it chews it up and it makes it fluoresce. So the more copies you have, the more of that reporter gets chewed down. Travis and just the I lost everybody else. Light shows up. So one copy Xeroxes and it fluoresces at X amount and then two, 10. So if you have like a hundred copies versus 10 copies, the brightness of that hundred copy one is gonna come up before the brightness of the 10 copy one. If there's 10,000 copies, that's gonna come up way before 10 copies come up. And we can run a control set of a million copies, a hundred thousand copies, 10,000 copies, a thousand copies. And we can see where each of those comes up on a graph and then we can plot that against our unknown and where the unknown comes up gives us an idea of where their copy numbers are versus that standard so an animal that is actively expressing could have 10,000 copies per mill an animal that is not expressing could only have one copy in that whole sample right and the signal does not come up enough because you just yeah it takes so long for it to get to any point where that signal is detectable that by the time the run is completed you don't have a detectable signal and you know with a false negative like dale said you can have those situations where the animal isn't expressing the virus and so there's nothing there for those little Xerox pieces to copy over. But what you can also have is where those Xerox pieces don't match quite right. So since they don't match, they can't copy that piece of DNA that they're supposed to copy over. Mm. So it can be there, but if there's say a mutation or if the copy, the little copy pieces that you make don't exactly match the the genetic sentence, then you can't make the copy. And that can lead to a false negative. And that in part um, is an important factor that we can discuss here in a little bit with how it relates to some of what we see and what we may not be seeing with this virus. Um, the false positive aspect of it can also be if you don't have those copy number, those copy letters right, they might stick to something that isn't the virus and copy that over too. So you can get a positive signal when you really shouldn't be getting one. Or you can have contamination or something like that. If you're not a scientist and you're swabbing the snake all wrong and touching everything in your room and contaminate the swab, well, that's going to come up as positive, not because your snake actually has it, but because somebody else in your, some other snake in your room already had it and you just picked up the remains right 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 my frustration with the whole thing is like and i was talking about this uh the other night is like i want to like surely there's some there's a good book or several books that talk about like the 
not just the anatomy, like hardcore anatomy of snakes, but also things like how their immune system works compared to other animals, how, you know, <coughs> just various things that sort of break it down so that you can kind of understand better exactly what's, like, what's happening. And, like, because I always wondered, you know, is there something that, that we can supplement snakes that boost their immune system with stuff like this so that it kind of helps me, them fight me, it off? Real quick. So snakes, because they are whole prey feeders, never virtually do we see vitamin deficiency snakes. Right. Everything that they would eat in the wild, that whole prey item, um, meaning the bones, so they don't have lack of calcium, um, the small intestines of mm -hmm. the animal, where a lot of the B vitamins come from, vitamin A, which comes from a lot of times liver, and the fat has that. We just do not see vitamin deficiencies in snakes like we do in other reptiles where people keep them poorly and poor husbandry. Having that said, could I boost the snake's immune system? I absolutely believe that husbandry, meaning cleanliness, um, base, having um, their ambient temp right, humidity right, all that contributes to a healthy immune system. And we all know that, you know, there's been certain snakes in their collection, whatever, just weren't as great eaters. They didn't do as long that we've kind of nursed along the wild, those things probably would have never made it, you know, for one reason or another. So I do think that when we keep them, we kind of artificially help them come along. But um, so I'm going to just tell you, when I went to University of Florida, Elliot Jacobson, who's kind of like one of the fathers of reptile medicine, did a bunch of studies on viruses and all that and snakes and reptiles. But the real answer is the reason there's not, and you said, what about their immune system, all that? The reason there's not a lot of great studies is nobody wants to throw money at it. So one thing we've learned about science is you got to throw money at it. So the science of poultry, very well done because the poultry industry in the United States, right. eggs, chicken, people eat chicken all the time. Same things with dogs and cats. I mean, my gosh, people spend billions and billions every year on dogs and cats. Ask a snake or reptile person to spend $87 on a culture. And they're like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. Can't you get the antibiotics, doc? <laughs> and well, what about a vaccine? Why can't we get a vaccine? Literally, it would cost millions of dollars to develop a vaccine. And who's going to develop it? Somebody yeah. has to have the, the, not only the science knowledge, but then the backing, financial backing. Like we're seeing again, I hate to keep making the comparisons. But on the human side, when you try to rush to get a vaccine, sometimes it may, it may not work. Sometimes it could work. But it takes, in, in our case, humans, billions and billions of dollars to bring a vaccine to the market. There's just not that money in the reptile industry. And the same thing with studies. Um, a lot of the reptile medicine, a lot of us who are interested, we learn on the fly. I mean, we learn because we're interested. And um, most vets are good people, but in vet school, we don't get a lot of training on reptiles unless you've done an extended course of study. And I told you, I did an externship at San Diego Zoo and Wild Animal Park my senior year just because I loved the exotic stuff. However, you still, you don't get a whole lot of knowledge. I mean, you have to learn it on the fly. And unless you're interested in it, um, do a lot of necropsies on your own animals, on people's animals, um, do surgeries like that. You don't learn it. So a lot of the whole reptile medicine thing, it's kind of, I'm not going to say in its infancy, but it kind of still is. because it's neglected. It is. It's an ugly stepchild. It's, it's again, your, 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 your unstable cousin that nobody really wants to deal with. And I think a lot of it comes from the reptile community. I have a lot of good friends in the reptile community and have met a lot of great people. Um, and we have the very educated side. This guy over here, I can't get 
then we have some guys with 87 tattoos and ear gauges and everybody gets along in the same room but you know try to get them to you know agree on anything and sometimes put the money towards that it's tough i mean usark i think they do a great job um creating money for establishing um our rights to continue to be able to keep these animals however when it comes to health things a lot of people don't want to spend the money well, that's, I mean, we all like, we all keep these snakes, you know, we all have decent sized collections, at least most of us. But I mean, you think about it, there's a lot about these animals that we, that we mess with on a day to day basis that we don't know. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't know anything about immune systems and snakes and how they work. So I feel like there's a very large gap as far as like in the hobby, as far as understanding this kind of stuff. They, they don't have lymph nodes, but I mean, I think a healthy animal, whether you're a healthy plant, a healthy animal, um, when you're healthy, um, you can fight off things a lot better than the non-healthy. And I think, again, that's one thing we've learned from COVID. Who are at most risk? People who are overweight, people who have type 2 diabetes, people who are on statins or ACE inhibitors, um, people who are on medicine who are not healthy, people who smoke cigars late at night. <laughs> but it's, it, it's people who... It, same thing with animals. Who's most vulnerable in the population? The people who are immunocompromised either due to husbandry, and again, that would be our fault, or genetically. I mean, there's no way I, I could believe that a spider, a woma, a spot nose, um, any of those that are genetically kind of wobbly, would they be more susceptible? I mean, I don't know. Um, sense would tell me they might. Be. Now, do we know if like heat affects the virus at all in animals that are like what are are there anything that we we know sort of cuts down so, here's, in it? so we know in humans a lot of the the spread is respiratory you know the sputum stays six feet back all that a lot of times we keep our animals in tubs there's not a lot of shared um respiratory secretions however if i have a male ah, eh, he's got a little bit of a ri but i'm going to use him to breed this this season anyway i put him in with the female Think that female got exposed sufficiently? Absolutely. You think if I clean my tubs, I put here, I put them all in the same bucket and I don't scrub out the tubs. I just kind of, I'm not using gloves. I'm not changing gloves. Use the same thing. Could it be spread in the feces? Absolutely. In fact, we know that. We know that in humans, um, they shed it in the feces and in animals they do as well. So there's no question the fecal oral route. If I throw around the, the snake, that's kind of he's respiratory, but I'm going to see if he's going to eat. Rat runs around for 15 minutes through the feces of that snake. And I don't want to race a rat because I just paid $2.30 for it at, you know, wherever I'm buying my rats. So I throw it in the container with another snake. That snake then ingests that rat that had just been run through the feces of the snake that had maybe the nidovirus. Could that be a source of infection? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, there's so many things that, you know, a science person would think of you know, cross-contamination. Um, I don't think that raising or lowering the temperature makes a huge difference, but I do think that our husbandry practices absolutely make a big difference in how they're spread. And um, I cringe sometimes when I see, you know, people who get a new snake and they throw it right in, they're breeding the male with a female in a week, and I just go, ugh. So my, my protocol, <laughs> so I have a snake room. Um, but whenever I acquire a new snake, and I do like to buy new snakes, um, I swab them. I swab them and I put them in a, a separate rack 
in the same room, which probably is not ideal, but in a rack. And again, I have no air holes in the rack. So it's in a plastic rack with a plastic thing. And I know it's a new snake. So I watch it and I observe it. And I think that if it tests negative, I watch it, observe it for, I'd say 60 days. I could save in the things eating and doing well, I could safely assume that, that snake is probably healthy enough to add to my collection, the breeding stock, whatever I want to do. Well, then to go with what Justin was saying about temperatures and stuff is, you know, I come from a lot of old school stuff. And one of our things before we even knew what, you know, that snakes even had viruses, it was, oh, it's got an RI. Eat take, away, take away its water dish and blast it with heat. Yeah. It's tropical, blasted with heat. It's a desert animal, blasted with heat. Oh, it's montane, blasted with heat. And I'm sure a lot of animals died, but I myself have done it because that's what we did, and it worked. And then I've had other animals that it was too far gone, and we went to a, a different antibiotic route or something something totally different, tried more humidity, whatever. So there, there's no and question. It, it, it died. And humans, when we get a virus, what does our body do? Um, fever. Eat a fever, Absolutely. So you see a reptile with a um, an infection. There's no question their immune systems operate a little bit better when they're warm. However, what I tell people is I give them the option. And typically, a animal knows what's going on. Bearded dragon that's sick sits under that light all day long. And you go, why is it sitting under there? A turtle that has a respiratory infection that's bobbing up and down. My, my people say, hey, it's on its basking rocks sitting under the lamp the whole time. Why is it doing that? I go because innately that animal knows get better. I have to warm myself up. So I'd say in some cases, absolutely. That could, that could help. Um, in this case with the virus, might it help that, that animal's immune system function a little bit better? Maybe. Um, but I would always give them the option. I think that, you know, mother nature knows best. And in that case, I, I absolutely believe that, you know, that if the animal needs heat to make itself better, they typically seek out heat if, you know, they want to stay on the cool side, then, you know, that's what I let them do. The heating is, you know, basically what reptiles do when they heat themselves. They're increasing their metabolic capacity. And by increasing their metabolic capacity, they're allowing their immune system to act at a higher capacity functionality. You know, they're speeding it up a bit. So by speeding up that response, they are better able to fight the infection, but it does not guarantee a cure the same way right. if you're running a fever, it does not guarantee that you're going to get over whatever illness it is that you have. Yeah. You know, this is why we have medicine that we take right. in certain conditions because the medicine coupled with our personal fever is what helps us get through, you know, our body ramps up our heat, to bump up our immune system, our cell functionality, but you're also taking those drugs to help knock the thing down so that your body can help you get over that hump. But and that's, well, that's why I asked the about the, alone. that's why I talked about, like asked about the immunobooster sort of deal, because I mean, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'd say I'm asking these questions because a chondro I have, I moved it into a bigger tub recently because I was like, you know, why not? Um, uh, and of course, yesterday I offer food. He refuses, which is very strange. It's not normal, and he's very he's slightly bubbly. Yeah. And so I moved him back into that smaller tub that he was in originally. Here, here's uh, here's so one thing I extrapolated from human medicine, and I myself had COVID. I like to read um, scientific papers, and I read everything. And remember, they were talking about hydroxychloroquine, which worked great on then. 
it got kind of bashed a little bit. Um, people said azithromycin was great. Bleach. I, then, then I read a paper. I read a paper um, out of Australia in the lab in vitro. And in vitro means basically in the lab. Um, in vivo means in real life. But in vitro, ivermectin, a single dose of ivermectin um, reduced the viral load by 5,000 fold. A single wow. dose. So then another paper I read goes, ah, that's BS because you can never achieve the plasma levels that they used in the lab of ivermectin. My whole thought process was, I don't care if I reduce the viral load by 5,000 times. What if a single dose of ivermectin can reduce the viral load by five times, by 10 times? Is it worth it? Absolutely. It's an FDA approved drug for humans for the treatment of malaria. It decreases um, the reproduction of the virus at least in vitro and in vivo in real life for certain viruses. So my whole thought, in fact, they were using it for HIV, but you go, well, why haven't there been more studies about this? I personally took ivermectin daily for five days when I had COVID. I tested positive July 8th. I tested negative July 15th. So I think, did that play a role? I don't know. But now if Justin, if you were my client and you go, hey, could I try ivermectin on that? Absolutely. In fact, I have people doing it, and um, I think that's you know showing some promise. Um, but again, and people go, why haven't they tried it? And I'm not a conspiracy. However, ivermectin is it's available at the feed store. I can get yeah, it. Yeah, I've used for, it previously, and it makes me nervous because I know it is very easy to overdo. It. But it is. So that's why dosing comes in. However, what I'm telling you, um, people are not going to spend millions and billions of dollars on doing a study if they cannot. And I, I don't fault them for that. So the human industry goes, why are we going to spend $20 billion on a study when ivermectin, when people can go buy it at the feed store? There's no money to be made, right? So they're not going to focus on that. And, and yeah. again, and they're wrong because I understand it. Um, you wouldn't do that in any business. However, I think that, you know, the viral load, and we can talk about it, Justin, later, but the dose that I use is 02 or 0.4 milligrams per kilogram of body weight um, daily. And that translates as 200 micrograms or 400 micrograms per kilogram of body weight daily, orally, not injectable. Okay. Orally. And so I like it. And again, I took it myself. So it's an FDA approved drug in humans for malaria. I think uh, I have like two bottles of it in my room right now. Right. It's probably old, but. You didn't pay much for it, right? No, the big bottle was like 40 bucks, but that's more ivermectin than anyone would ever need. That would treat a thousand human beings, right? So you go, well, why didn't anybody jump on it? I think a lot of, there are some studies out on it, but again, they're not going to put a lot of money into it if there's not a lot of money to come back. So, um, you know. Um, Ivermectin's over here, so to speak. I absolutely use it in my own reptiles, I can tell you. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to contradict Dale here a little bit from, again, from my research medical side of it, you know, I know the paper that he's talking about and I don't disagree with it as having some beneficial benefit. There have been broader studies as well that I have read where the risk of complications outweighs that potential benefit. Um, and that's one of the detractors. And the other detractor is like Dale was pointing out is the ubiquitous availability of it makes it dangerous to broadly advocate its usage because in the same way people will go to a fish store and buy fish amoxicillin to self-medicate when they're sick 
if people just go to Tractor Supply Company and buy a bottle of horse ivermectin paste and, you know, squirt some out and lick it on their tongue, then you're going to start seeing a lot of people ending up in the hospital with ivermectin poisoning, which is now just creating a bigger problem. Yeah. So, so that's, that's also part of the reason that there isn't this broad blast of everybody should use ivermectin. See, yeah. I've only used it for mites. Like I've only used it as a solution to spray. Yeah, um, but I've it, used it to deworm a steak before. So, so dose correctly, it's, it's a very safe drug. And like I say, it's an FDA approved drug for human use um, for malaria. But again, you're right, Travis. You cannot just dose yourself and figure out what the heck you know. Um, you know, I'm a medical person. I felt very confident. I dosed myself. So it's not like I, I scripted it out for, you know, other people. But I dosed myself, felt very confident that I wasn't going to do anything negative. And um, we use it in dogs. We use it for demodectic mange daily dose mm-hmm. between four, two to 400 micrograms per kilogram of body weight daily. And we do it daily for four to six weeks. And, you know, I can tell you that there are there are a small subset of dogs and it's collies that have a genetic variation that makes them ivermectin sensitive. And those very small dogs, and it's typically collies um, when they studied it, they absolutely can have a reaction to the drug. So a lot of people who raise collies, border collies, Australian shepherds, everybody thinks that, oh, those dogs cannot take ivermectin. Um, there is a small subset of those dogs that have genetic mutation where they do not do well on ivermectin. So could there be people with that? I guess there could. Now, again, it's, it's a drug in the right hands, dose correctly. I feel very confident with it, but it's not something to go out and buy a coarse paste and dose yeah. your grandmother with it because, you know, that's, I agree, that's not. Yeah. All I can think of is the guy in the cubicle with the bottle of Robitussin next to his laptop, and he's not putting it in the little plastic cup it comes with. He's just swigging out of it throughout the day. Yeah, you know? yeah. We call those alcoholics. <laughs> now this this is probably a stupid question but as far as like in people do you get the same effect like you would in like chelonians with ivermectin where if it crosses the blood brain barrier there's like paralysis so chelonians die from it i mean that's right. not even and, and i had in vet school we were taught that no turtle gets ivermectin and when i first came out i had a friend who was raising turtles and he goes i keep taking my turtles this this vet and he keeps giving them ivermectin they keep dying and i go why the heck do you keep taking that? He goes, he's cheap. And I go, well, you're getting what you're paying for then. So we know that in certain species it doesn't do well. Um, but again, snakes, I use it all the time. Um, you know, and again, dose correctly. I, I use two to 400 micrograms per kilogram of body weight, which is 0.2 milligrams or 0.4 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. But again, ivermectin typically comes in a bottle where you get 10 milligrams per ml. So, 10 milligrams for one ml. So 0.2 milligrams, how do I dose a 100 gram snake? You need to be pretty good with math um, or sit behind Travis or contact a veterinarian to figure out a dose. And that that is the problem. And you're right about that. So you need small volume syringes to make serial dilutions. Dilute it. So I dilute it with propylene glycol because it is a lipophilic substance. So meaning likes fat. So some people use corn oil. I use propylene glycol. So I take, you know, and, and dilute it. And, and so I dilute it until I have the proper dose. And I've used it on many snakes, many cats, many dogs, and include myself. Have you ever nebulized it? Never. 
never nebulize it. It's kind of greasy, so that's the whole thing. So mm -hmm. that you could really nebulize it. I, I don't know that. So here's what I would say. Because, because it is a lipophilic substance, likes fat, would I want that nasty, fatty stuff in my lungs? No way. So I couldn't mm -hmm. imagine it would help with breathing. But like I say, you know, and Travis and I, if we're talking about the same paper as one done in Australia, and like I say, I've read it, and then I read somebody countering it saying, um, you know, you can never get that dose. But in the lab, they decrease the viral load by a single dose by 5,000-fold. So I'm going, man, again, I'm not going to get that plasma level, but what if I could decrease my viral load by two times and my snake that's dying, if I could decrease it by four or five times, would that be acceptable? To me, it would, especially if the alternative is the snake dies. So let me ask you this. What is your, let's assume we're dosing the a snake with it. What's the preferred method of oral dosing? I mean, is it, are you squirting in its mouth? Are you putting in a prey item? Uh, is there like a so, form? Most of these snakes aren't eating, right? They're right. not. They're sick. They're not eating. So your your choice are either to put a tube, um, an esophageal tube, all the way down in the stomach, um, and or um, just putting a one cc syringe past the trachea into the mouth. And the real answer is, you know, we still don't know how drugs are metabolized in reptiles. Everything that we use, antibiotics, we've extrapolated or borrowed from the mammalian side. Nobody's done any real great studies. There's very few studies on how drugs are broken down, on how they're metabolized and mm -hmm. compared to people. However, a lot of times, like I say, we've had to learn on a wing and a prayer, and I've done a lot of it. And like, like I said, you have to do it sometimes because you're the, the animal's only shot as a veterinarian because nobody else sees snakes or um, does snakes or turtles or chelonians or you know lizards so you know a lot of things you know i talk to the client and i go hey look here's what i think let's give it a try let's do it and um you know we go from there now would you still do ivermectin if it wasn't necessarily even you know say you tested it ended up they had an ri but it wasn't viral related it was more bacterial would you still do that me ivermectin? i would i would because we just talked about false negatives if I do one viral swab and it comes back NIDO negative, but the snake gets progressively worse, is it really negative or was it not shedding the virus at that time? Or did my swab, I didn't get enough? Or did the RNA degrade on the way shipping? Or did the lab, you know, mishandle it? So would I do it? Absolutely. Because in me, you know, I always in medicine, you want, you want the benefit to outweigh the risk. Right. Yeah, the dying, swing the fences. Bottom of the ninth inning, bases loaded. You're down by three runs. Do you buck or look for a walk? No, you swing to hit it out of the park. At least I do. So that's what I would do. Yeah, and miss 100 of the shots you don't take. Right, and providing it's dosed appropriately, there's no harm in it if it is bacterial or it is viral. Yep, he lost down. He froze. <laughs> <laughs> I don't you know. Like I said, that's that's <laughs> the, the the stuff that I just I'm thinking about all the time. It's like you know, like he was saying, not knowing how medications are broken down and how things are processed, and like that's just. I feel like if we knew simple stuff like that, like how their immune system operates on a regular basis and things like that, like that would give us a much better understanding of how exactly to to sort of spearhead problems and even well, as hobbyists to better understand these things. Yeah, and I. I think another problem is too, and I obviously I want to hear 
Dr. Wyman's take on this as well, but I know myself and most of my friends, I would say 70 to 80% of the medical stuff that we've done in the past, we learn on our own because the local vet has no idea what they're talking about. And the books that I have are completely contradictory to them. And you're fearful. And I've seen vets that are like, oh, yeah, just do this. And I'm like, I don't know, man. I, that doesn't sound right. And I'm like, I know you're the, you're the, you're the guy who went to you know, medical school. I, I don't know anything, but that just doesn't sound kosher. You know, and sometimes the animal died and sometimes the animal did great, you know. So it's tough, you know. That's why I'm, I'm excited to have met Dale because he does live so close to me. And I think that that would be a, a valuable asset I could go to in, in time of need. Yeah, I, I would definitely advocate Dale in that regard. Um, in terms of, you know, I mean, Dale already said it, it. A lot of reptile medicine, even in people who are exotic vets like Dale, is experimentation. There he is. <laughs> um, I got and, you. You, know, you know, as Dale said, we they extrapolate, we extrapolate based a lot on mammalian studies, which a lot of times just doesn't apply. In fact, it might do us a little better in some cases to extrapolate more off of birds because yeah. at least in terms of the evolutionary ladder, yeah. birds are closer to snakes than they are to, than mammals are. Right. So, or than mammals are to snakes. So, you know, it's this thinking outside of the box thing that, you know, these vets are always trying to do but you know they will a competent that will tell you look we're working outside of the box here and this is my best guess but it's my best informed guess some vets are just like this is what i'm reading in the book this is what i'm going to do i have no clue but i'm not going to admit that i have no clue because i have to look like i know everything that i'm doing I always admit that I have no clue. Then it makes you seem smarter if it goes. I, and I agree. When when you're when you're making an informed guess, to tell somebody that you're making an informed guess, I think shows you to be the smarter person because you're owning that at the end of the day, it's still a guess, and you're still learning. So if something does go wrong, you forewarned them that something could go wrong but they know you tried your best versus if you just try to bullshit them that you know what you're doing is right and things go wrong, then they look at you as having broken their trust. Yeah. Justin and Phil, I wanted to throw this at you. So I talked to the lab that I use today. It's Research Associates Lab in Texas. And again, I like it because they have the Boyd panel. You get three viral um, PCR tests, RNA virus tests for I think it's $55 for the panel. You do that three separate viruses for 55. Yeah. I mean, that's like a bargain. Yeah. That's yeah. cheaper than changing your oil, right? And it takes a, a guy like that 15 minutes to explain the thing. So to me, it's a bargain. But here's what I was going to tell you. So year to date, they have run um, over 1,300 NIDO tests. Of those 1,300, 270-something um, came up positive. So we have about a 20% positive ratio, or excuse me, 20% positive test rate. So is it out there? Absolutely, it's out there. But if you don't look, you're not going to find it. Don't 
test. You're never going to find it. So I think as an industry, um, we, we should do better. And I think that whenever you buy a snake, to me, before you bring it in a collection, have it swabbed, tested. If you don't have a local vet that you like to work with, maybe you can do it yourself. But I think do it. And some vets have an interest in it. And you could probably talk them into doing it. You can send it yourself via FedEx to the lab. But I think that's the thing. Before I spend $5,000 on a snake or $4,000 on a snake, I better darn sure know that it's negative. And I think as a seller a lot of times. So if I have a $5,000 snake that I have on Morph Market and somebody says, hey, um, I'll pay for the NIDO test. Would you test it for me? Absolutely, I would. If it comes back positive, I go, oh, crap. You know, I'm glad I didn't sell that. But it comes out negative. Um, that buyer knows it was negative on that day it was tested. does not mean it's going to be negative a month from now. But again, it's better than what we're doing now. And if I was spending $5,000 on a new snake, in fact, every new snake I acquire, whether it's a $300, $400, $500, $1,000 snake, it gets tested before it gets brought into the collection. Let me ask you, of that, of that numbers you just spewed from that one lab, it may be irrelevant or it may, it may be relevant. Of those numbers, how many of those were from the same collection? No idea. No, no idea. That's the thing. As a medical person, I didn't ask for any names. I didn't ask. I did ask the guy, right. hey, do you have any hot spots like states that are hotter than others for testing positive? I said, you know, with all the shipping people do now, I can't really put it at one um, demographic area. He said, you know, it's pretty universal. But I think it's pretty interesting that, you know, we, we consider COVID a, um, a pandemic when what's the percentage now of tests that are positive? 10%, 15%, I don't know. But, and again, it's skewed because most people don't test healthy snakes. They test snakes, giving them an issue, a problem. Right. right. I think it's worth it. And again, um, I always tell people, and, and Travis and I talk about it a lot. Could we all have it in our collection? We might. And why just one yeah. snake with it? And I should knock on wood when I say this, but sincerely, I've never had a respiratory infection in my collection, and I'm scared to death of it because of what I see. But, you know, we may all have it in our collection, and we never know until we test. I don't have plans to test all of my collection ever just because I have the number and the cost. However, new snake gets tested. If I ever have a snake, that is showing signs you better darn well believe that that snake's getting tested and i think that you know when we go to reptile shows and you have all those things like that that you know it's 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 a it's tough i mean you know people are touching snakes or touching another snake is it wrong to ask somebody to clean their hands wash their hands between snakes absolutely i don't let people handle snakes that i have there unless they've cleaned their hands with alcohol and, um, you know, for a lot of different reasons, but that's just me. Right. I mean, I think it should almost be a requirement that tables have some sort of, you know, yeah, clean, you know, cleaning. Am I supposed to answer that question? Yes, that is for you. Okay. Dale, um, my eyes are old. So. Dale, I was going to ask you, do you find RAL to be comparable to other labs? Have you compared results? So that's a very good question. So comparable. Um, so I did contact another lab, and I do not want to bash anybody. Um, but that lab takes those, and I, I thought they were going to run it in-house, but that lab sends it to another lab for the test to be run. So to me, because of the reasons we talked about the RNA being time-sensitive, I thought that the fact that RAL, Research Associates Labs, runs it in-house, they run it in a timely fashion, was very important to me because I know that RNA um, breaks down quick. 
So I wouldn't send it to the labs. It took two weeks for, for me to get results back because then I'd be um, reluctant to accept their results. But have I compared positive tests and send it to another lab? Absolutely not because as Travis talked about, when that thing glows and it's positive and that test is made specifically for that strand of RNA, so when it's positive, a real positive should be a positive. You shouldn't have to if that assay was developed. Am I allowed to say assay on air? Can I say that? <laughs> I'm just teasing. It's like it's like a little molecular human. So um, if that assay was developed properly, when it tests positive, that PCR test should be positive. You should not have any false positives. Am I right about that, Travis? Mostly. I mean, if we want to go crazy deep dive into the nerd science level, I can explain how sometimes the positives do not exactly mean what you think they would mean. But it should be positive if, if that test was developed properly. And yes. Properly if, the, if the test was developed properly, then a positive test should mean that the animal does have the virus. I hope that answered your questions. I do not feel the need um, to resubmit a positive test to another lab to get a second positive. However, a negative, as we talked about, does not mean negative because, again, could have swabbed it at the wrong time, could have swabbed it not with the right thing. Test could have taken too long to get, get there, could have sat in the lab too long before they ran it. So two reasons it could have been negative. See, it's so frustrating, man. I've had I've had snakes with RIs over the years, and I, you know, nebulized gentamicin, and it's like, it gets me nowhere. So again, I would ask you, are any of those, did you um, culture any of those or check any of them for viruses? No. So, right. So you get that and you go, why didn't the antibiotic work? Well, because if I tell you um, that an antibiotic only treats bacterial infection and not viral infection, right. Right. that would explain that. So that's why, and for years, people go, why can't I get rid of the RI? And always, you know, I suspected that there was viral causes underlying it, and sometimes husbandry, um, but usually that's the reason. And again, snakes immunocompromised. If you have a big, and I, and I always say this, I have a friend that I talk to almost every day about snakes, and I go, if I lost every snake in my collection tomorrow, I would be upset. I'd be bummed out, but I'd still be able to pay my rent because it's just a hobby. You know, it's a fun hobby for me. Um, I don't do it. However, there are a lot of people out there that do it for a living. And mm -hmm. bless those people. And those people who do it for a living, I would be so anal about getting new snakes in, testing new snakes, isolating new snakes, because their entire livelihood depends yeah. on that collection healthy. It's like a farmer. You're a snake farmer, basically. And if you ever been to a poultry farm, yeah. no. This is the agriculture nerd coming out, Travis. So poultry farms, um, they have feed trucks, big giant feed trucks that take feed from the from the place to the poultry farm. Um, they do not even allow those feed trucks because they've been at other poultry farms to come through their farm. They have to drive through a wheel bath, meaning to get rid of pathogens from one farm to another. Every person that comes to work has to change clothes before they come into the poultry farm because they do not want to take the risk of spreading disease. They are so anal about it because they know if a disease gets in their flock, they're done. They're, yeah. They have no money. So I, I think that, you know, we're hobbyists. We're not nearly as strict, you know, because, again, most time it's a hobby. It's fun. A snake dies. People go, eh, you know, I lost a snake. However, if I were doing it for a living, would I be anal about, you know, what comes in and out? Yeah. I think they have to be on a different level.
It is difficult though when you when you let's say you are a a wholesaler or you're a breeder and you buy an entire lot of animals. Let's say you buy a hundred snakes, right? Test all of them. That's crazy because like us as the hobbyists, if I let's say I call up Justin and say, "Oh, Justin, I really want one of those new chondros you just got." You know what? Hey, man, tack on a nido test. I'll pay for it. Like, what's sixty-five dollars? What's a hundred dollars on top of the price of the animal for the peace of mind, for the education of it, whatever? But when you're doing that a hundred times, that shit adds up. No, you're absolutely right. But how much are you sell those animals for? If I'm buying a hundred animals and the average sales price is five hundred dollars, and I say, "Hey, to the person, hey, do you want me to do a nido test on this animal?" They're not going to say, well, no, I don't want you to. Um, it's going to add $55 to the cost, you know. True. You know, and, and, and again, how much are you reselling that animal for? If you're selling it to PetSmart and you're getting $15 a pop, you're 100% not going to run those tests. But if it's exactly. a animal, if it's a breeder animal, if it's a $1,000 animal, I think that it's not unreasonable to ask. People might say, well, I've never had it. Will you? And I, and I tell people, I go, hey. I'm going to test the snake for it for, you know, everything. And I'll let you know the results. And a lot of people go, wow, uh, thanks. I'm, I'm nervous now. And then they you know, call me, Hey, what was the result? And not one single snake that I've gotten in this year or last is tested positive for any of them, which knock on wood again, very thankful. But I always let the people know, cause they go, Hey, that's pretty cool that you did that. Um, but I think, you know, again, unless we're more proactive, you know, it's never going to, go away we're never going to understand it all and you know we'll still be learning stuff 10 years from now i think do you think it'll ever get to a point where most collections are are adjusted to it you know like herd immunity kind of thing or is it because it's it's specific to different different species or groups like ball pythons and chondros and stuff like that that it'll always sort of i mean it does evolve Sure. regularly i'd imagine you know is it is there ever going to be a point where you think it would it would level out in a sense uh, i my guess is probably going to get worse and you go why because i think as people now we we ship a snake across the country all the time so there's no hot pockets um we have reptile shows travel all across multiple states to come and they bring stuff so my guess is do i think in the near future no but i think ultimately what people are going to I think demand is before I put a lot of money into this snake, I want it tested first. I'm going to test it first. I think that's the only thing, right? We need, we need to start, unless you turn over the rocks, you're not going to find the snakes. Anybody who says, well, if you've never tested, of course you've never had it because you don't know. Right. So I, I think that one thing we're going to make more educated. Um, you know, I, I think it, it, it'll be great for the, I really do. Could we ever see a vaccine? I never think we're going to see a vaccine just because of the money, the money involved to manufacture and make and to test it. And the, the money's just not there. Right. Yeah. What lab is going to shut down their human or their livestock, you know, research and production for snakes? They're not going to do it. Yeah. No. Oh, you know, you know, one thing I, I heard that was pretty, pretty, it scared the heck out of me. So talk about coronavirus and people. Norway has a huge mink industry, right? They have like 17, I think it was 17 million. I may be saying the number wrong. 17 million, I think, mink country. The, the mink out, out, they outnumber the people there by like fivefold, whatever. But they were finding the coronavirus in mink was mutating, then reinfecting people. So the prime minister 
ahead of that wiped out, they said, so they euthanized the entire mink industry, wiped out the entire industry because they're afraid it was going to jump back to human in a mutated form. So not that that has anything to do with ball pythons, but I just thought that was pretty cool that, you know, talk about an industry wiping out itself. That's pretty crazy, right? Wow. Well, the, uh, the, the logic behind that is, so yes, obviously, mink molestids are quite susceptible to coronaviruses, um, but they have also found, like, they have done flu studies in mink and the like, showing that if you put what seems to be a relatively benign flu into them and let it passage around until it becomes really dangerous to the minks and it jumps to humans, it's really, really dangerous to the humans. So they were concerned that something like that would happen where if COVID got into them and mutated enough, it could become either one more pathogenic or two completely different to the point that the vaccines that we've been sure. rushing to develop now no longer work against it because this new strain coming out of minks is more infectious and is just different enough that the vaccine misses it. So they took extreme measures to avoid that from happening. Crazy though, right? Yeah. I think it's even well, that, that Travis knew that. I read that in PubMed Norway Weekly about the industry. <laughs> Popular virology. Yeah. I got that in my ProMed email blasts. That, you know, I get three of those a day. <laughs> I was doing a little light reading in the bathroom the other day about Minx Quarterly, and I found it. <laughs> you had another question. Oh. Do you randomly test your animals in your collection or just the three at the beginning? Do you do random testing? Questions for me? I, I believe so. Okay, so I do not randomly test um, animals. I test anything new coming in. If I have, and knock on wood, I haven't had any RIs in my collection, so I've been good. Um, but I cannot say that, and I think everybody who keeps enough animals, you will find one dead every once in a while. And I've had babies that wouldn't need that you know, just we're not good thriving babies that die. And most of the time, by the time I, you know, find them, um, they're degraded enough to where I go, man, something stinks. And I find a, you know, baby that hasn't eaten or whatever. And it's, it, it, it's not, you know, something that we, we want to deal with. But whenever you deal with animals, I think you're going to deal with loss. So do I test anything that dies? I typically do not. Um, but typically, like I say, in my collection, it's just been babies that, you know, fail. That's why mom has 20. And and I think you're right. And I, I say that all the time. In, in species where, um, you know, and in ball pythons, obviously, is less than that. But whenever you have clutches like that uh, in the wild, not all are expected to live. And sometimes we have animals like I've had animals. But I just get tired of force feeding. I go, that's it. You either eat on your own or, you know, that's it. I'm tired of, you know, dealing with this. So, you know, I won't say I never lose an animal, but um, I test every animal on entry. And then again, if, if I were a lay person out there listening, I would test any sick animal. So let me. It wasn't ask, meant to be. It wasn't meant to be. Let me ask you guys: I, uh, what is the most obscure, contagious ailment you've seen in reptiles? Both of you. Herpes. Um. Herpes. 
I haven't seen anything really crazy. I so my kukris, um, the first pair of those I got had some type of nematode in them, and I discovered this because when I was you know checking over them in quarantine, one of them I saw the worm crawling across its eye. And when I saw that, I immediately called Dale and said, I need to dose these with ivermectin to kill the worms. How do we go about the dosage? And that's when we broke down the whole, you know, proper dosage level. And the nice thing about the kukris is they eat oil eggs. So I just diluted it down to the proper thing, took an insulin syringe and popped it into the egg, pumped it in there let it sit for half an hour to disperse and then drop that in. And, you know, the kukri's ate the eggs and it cleared them out. Um, the one who had the worm in her eye, her eye, you know, because the worm obviously died in her eye, um, her eye is now like shrunken and sunken in because it had to deal with the infection of dead animal rotting in it. Um, but that's the worst thing that I have seen. Were any um, of the nematodes subcutaneous or was it all internal? They were all internal that I could tell. Okay. Um, you know, and I had only had them for like 48 hours at that point. I hadn't even had a chance to do a fecal float on them. I mean, if I hadn't seen it in the eye, by the time I got around to doing a fecal float, I'm sure I would have seen the eggs in that. So I would have ended up doing the treatment regardless. Um, yeah. I do know of somebody who got tongue worm. Well, they didn't get tongue worm, but their animal had tongue worm, and tongue worm is really nasty and it's really contagious even to humans. So that's you know one of these things you need to check for and make sure that you know if you're getting snakes out of Africa, yeah, you might not just want to go handling them barehanded and then not wash your hands really really damn well because getting tongue worms is not a pleasant thing. All right, question for me now. Do I? Yeah, go for it. So um, bearded dragons, I think they all have adenovirus or have been exposed to it. So I think that's huge in, in, in bearded dragons. Um, crypto. If you talk to people, what, what is adenovirus? Um, adenovirus, it's a virus that um, very common in, in bearded dragons. And typically bearded dragons don't do well. I try to culture them for that virus and most of them come back absolutely positive. Um, it can cause cancers. It can cause liver disease, all kinds of things, just not eating. Um, uh, failure to thrive in dragons. Um, I've seen crypto, cryptosporidium, um, basically in geckos, you can see it in colubrids, and that is something kind of like a fecal oral transmission, and that can you know, wipe out collection. Yeah, our, our next THP episode will actually be with Dr. Lothman about crypto. So. Cool. And you got a bunch of nerds on the show, right? Oh, yeah. It's a great place for nerding out. Um, Love I just thought of another one that I had. Um, I had a buddy who went through some rough times and he needed to, I basically boarded his snakes for him for a while. And when he brought them all to me, basically what he did was he just broke down his wall unit of racks, stuck it in the back of a U-Haul and drove five states down to me and dropped it off. And that was at like the end of August. So it was kind of really toasty. And one of the animals basically just pissed and shit in its tub and spent the entire hot, disgusting ride in the back of a U-Haul sitting in its own filth. Yep, breathing it in. Yeah, that animal developed um, 
systemic sepsis. And I was going to say, he's got to be septic. God. Yeah, and it's one thing to hear that it develops systemic sepsis. It's another thing to be able to actually see it. This was an ivory ball python, which is white. <laughs> when your ivory ball python Not turns that the color of Dale's shirt <laughs> because of the amount of blood that is just leaking out of the blood vessels, and then you watch that just blood leakage drain down from the top of the snake into its belly over a period of about six hours and then crash out. That's really a disturbing thing to watch. It's like uh, it's a living lividity. Yes. Yeah. So that would probably be the most disturbing infection thing I got. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, in terms of RIs and the tests you've done, what percentage have been bacterial and what percentage have been viral? And then is there a possibility that it could be both? Are you asking me? I yes. Guess? So I would say that almost every single one will come back with some bacteria grown for the reasons we talked about. You mm -hmm. have bacteria um, in your in your body and your body's immune system does a great job of fighting it off. However, if you're immunocompromised, immunostressed, um, it's possible to have both and the virus more than likely is what causes it. And typically, um, if I have my choice, I would run cultures for both. But again, in the real world, well, somebody says, hey, I paid $85 for the snake. I'm not going to spend $175 running tests on it. You know, it's difficult to get people to do everything. So, but I, I can say a significant amount would have both, um, but I don't have an exact number for you. Okay. Sorry about that. I've, I've always heard that, that basically RIs are never sort of just RIs. They're usually a symptom of like a larger issue. I agree. And, and for the reason that. So how often do you know people that get a bacterial pneumonia? Not real common, unless they smoke, unless they're immunocompromised, immunosuppressed, mm -hmm. unless they have a virus, something like that. So I would say it's pretty much the same in all animals. Adult healthy animals typically don't get bacterial pneumonias unless they're immunocompromised. Uh, with specific reference to, you know, nidovirus or, you know, serpentovirus, if we're being technical, um, there is experimental evidence that shows that the infection in ball pythons does cause an inflammation of the upper respiratory tract, mm -hmm. but it only causes minimal pneumonia. Um, and they think that what we see as that that RI type infection is more because of irritation of that upper respiratory tract, yeah. so the esophagus and stuff, causing them to secrete a lot of mucus. And it's just the mucus buildup that's causing the hacking and the bubbling, but it's not a true pneumonia where it's an infection in the lungs. But the, um, the contrast to this is that when they look across populations and collections, it's, um, the most systemic viral spread that they see where the virus isn't just in the lungs, it's like infecting all kinds of different organisms, the liver, the lungs, the kidneys, the gastrointestinal tract, everything that is most common in Morelia. So that suggests that they are more susceptible to this virus. And what we're seeing in them may be a true viral pneumonia. Mm -hmm. So we're really seeing two different kinds of of infection being presented 
And because all we associate with is the bubbling and the drooling, and we just call that a respiratory infection, but in ball pythons, it means one thing where it's just, you know, it's, it's basically a throat cold for them. But with Morelia, specifically viridis, it's, it's in the lungs and it's really causing the problem there. So it's, we need to have a better understanding of how it's behaving in the different animals that we see it in. Mm-hmm. So by saying we have an RI, do we really it's have a pretty broad, broad stroke infection or is it, you know, is it more of an esophageal infection mm-hmm. that we're seeing? Now, and then complicating factors with the bacteria involved as well. Yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but I was going to say is the, how, how different is the serpentovirus specifically for Morelia viridis opposed to yeah, all pythons, right? Is the reaction of a ball python virus in a chondro heightened or diminished because it's not the intended host? Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. Okay. And, you know, it, it's funny that you should ask that because I created some figures showing exactly that. Justin, can I share screen to you? Uh, yeah, so... Should like it should give you the option at the bottom there to share your screen, mm-hmm. and then it'll ask you what what you want to like if there's a tab you want to share if there's something just in general. So. Okay. Um, where the heck? Are you on your computer or the phone? You're on your computer. Right? I'm on my computer. Yes. Okay. Yeah. If you look at the bottom where it says you know camera mic screen share leave studio, it's got like a red X to leave the studio. Don't click that. <laughs> and. Uh, just click that screen share and then it'll pull up. It should pull up a pop up that has, you know, what, you know, internet tabs or whatever you want to use. Yeah, I'm having to unlock to allow. Yeah, the last Carpet Fest, they did a, uh, like a presentation that showed sort of the, the stages of inflammation in the lungs and stuff like that and sort of showed you physically how, it, how it's affecting the animals that, that have it. And I think it seems to be more severe in the chondros. Okay, can you see my screen, Justin? Yes. And we're all still here. This is just his tab is... Right. Okay, so what you have here... Can you see my cursor moving around? No, you have, yeah. to, go, you have to go into the actual window, Trav, and then you will be able to see your cursor. Okay, well, I'm, I'm in the window, but okay. apparently it's still not letting me do it. Okay, so the top should be showing where it says query, ball python, nidovirus strain, 753. Yep. Okay, and then below that, it says carpet vi- python, nido. So what that top of blue bar is, is just a graphic representation of the ball python, nido. And the bottom line, the colored markations are the areas of absolute identity. So you've got a teeny tiny purple one on the far left. You've got that huge chunk running from about 13,000 to about 26,000 of red. Right. You've got a chunk at about 3,000 and then you've got the chunk at 32,000. Right. So that's the absolute identity between ball python and carpet python nido. And then below that is Morelia nido compared to carpet nido. And 
it's interesting that we see that the overlap between these is very similar. Um, now, I pulled these genomic sequences straight out of NCBI's gene bank. Um, these are the mm-hmm. reference strains for each of them. There's a, there are multiple strains, but these are the ones that they are calling the reference, so the most complete and the ones that you basically default to. Now, if I throw in a comparison between ball python nido and Morelia nido, now look at the amount of overlap that you have there. So it's, now the, the third graph is Morelia nido in ball pythons. Well, no, the third is when you look at ball python nido at the top there right. versus the nido virus that was pulled out of a green tree python. Okay. And what I would caveat here is ball nido strain 753 is the first sequence that was done. So we don't necessarily know that it is the most complete and perfect sequence. And mm-hmm. if we were to take all of the strains that we know now and hash it, we might see a slight shift in coding. And I think what we might see is that there's even greater degree of overlap. And what we're calling ball python nanovirus is actually just well, what we call ball python and what we call viridus nido are actually the same virus. I don't know that they are really significantly different. Now, I, okay. I could be mistaken, but given that huge degree of similarity, and also given how they almost perfectly mirror each other when you compare Morelia viridus to carpet python and ball python to carpet python, these two viruses almost act the same when you compare them against the carpet strain. So you've got that high degree of similarity between them when you look at ball and virus. Um, And kind of an important point here, when we go back to talking about false positives, you know, that 13 to 26,000 range that's shared similarity, that's the spot that we look at when we are looking at our PCR test. So if I do a test for nidovirus, I can't necessarily tell you that what I'm testing for is ball python nido versus carpet nido versus Morelia nido. And if I pull up another one, so that now bottom one is comparing the ball python nido to the Bellinger River virus, which was isolated out of the snapping turtle. And you can see, again, there's a huge degree of identity down at that 13,000 to 26,000 range. Oh, yeah. That Bellinger River virus would test positive on the NIDO test that we would run for the snakes because you've got that same identity there. So saying that your animal tested positive for nidovirus doesn't always mean that your ball python tested negative your tested positive for this really pathogenic virus um now it's likely that it's going to be a snake virus and a turtle virus obviously mm-hmm. but from some recent papers um I can jump to crap. Let me find a different one. This. 
we're getting really great feedback from some of the people viewing this live and just want to let you guys know that they're loving it. So I'm loving it too. I know Justin's loving it. So this paper right here, are you seeing the paper up? Yep. Yep. Okay. That paper in that paper, it, um, the experimental evidence that they have there, the data suggests that it is reasonable to speculate that most species of python likely have their own nidovirus that is specific to them, and that it is cross-species transmission of the viruses that results in increased morbidity. I would so it's agree with that. From what I'm seeing in the field, I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, so it's when, you know, in if my your carpet python has carpet nido, your carpet python may get a very mild disease, but your carpet python is probably okay. But when that carpet python nido jumps into some other python species, like a ball python, that's when we see problems. And so I think that may be kind of what we more see in the hobby is most likely, like I with that early slide showing how close the ball python and the green tree python nidos are, is and again, it's a speculation on my part, and it would definitely need more research. But if we think about it, if it's ball python nido, and the ball pythons just get that upper respiratory type infection, and are mostly okay because it's not really debilitating to them, but it jumped into a green tree python, and it wipes out the green tree pythons because it's so foreign. And so, you know, you've got we may not have seen nidovirus a lot previous to the most recent years because you had a lot of people who were just hyper-specialized. You had right. the ball python guys who only kept ball pythons and the carpet guys who only kept carpets and the green tree guys who only kept green trees. But in the past you know, decade or so, people have started doing the Noah's Ark thing where you know, you got the ball python guy who then gets bored with ball pythons, so he picks up a couple carpets and a couple green trees and then it jumped from a carpet to a green tree and then they decided they didn't like green trees anymore. They set their green tree onto somebody who had green trees and it just ripped through somebody's green tree population. So now what is it though that makes like, is it like if a carpet has carpet nido, why is it better equipped to handle that than another on like, like the foreign foreign variety? It's, it kind of comes down to the like a predisposition sort of sort of a predisposition yeah, but it's also you know it's a, you evolved with it if okay. you evolved the virus hand in hand it's not so much a problem for you because as you and the virus have come to terms with each other the virus becomes less lethal to you because ultimately a virus's goal you know not anthropomorphizing it but right. you know a virus wants to replicate and spread. Mm -hmm. and the best way to do that is to cause the least amount of damage to the host as possible. So like our common cold viruses are one of the best viruses for that because they get us, they mostly don't cause any real disease. They give you a little sniffle, but they spread like wildfire, mm -hmm. but they don't cause a lot of pathogenicity. Ebola it's a horrible virus in that regard because it gets into us and it kills 80% of the people it gets into. So it's not spreading. It defeats its own purpose. Right. Like parasites that, that if they kill their host, it's pointless because the right. point is to continue to spread and continue to move. And... Right. 
And that's really all that a virus is, is it's, it's a parasite on the molecular level. So if the carpet python and the carpet python nido are evolving in step, it's really not that bad for the carpet python. It's just a common cold for the carpet python, okay. or it's just a common cold for the ball python. But when it jumps into a different species, then it becomes really infectious because it's something completely different. And, you know, we see that kind of spillover with humans and we see it, in, you know, in animals and everything. It's one of my favorite books, by the way, Spillover by David Quammen. It's a good one. That's a great book. Anybody who's interested in this kind of stuff should definitely pick Justin, it up. Justin, what do you do for a living? I'm a tobacconist at a cigar shop. Okay. So how do you have the interest in that? I don't know. Just, like virology's always been very interesting to me. Just the it's fascinating that something you can't even see can completely hijack your your DNA or RNA and and rewrite it. And yeah, it's just it blows my mind. It, yeah, and, and what Travis said, um, I think that the um, nidovirus that I'm seeing that is affecting the chondros, they seem to be hit harder with it clinically, um, and more likely to die from it. I think, you know, a lot of chondro people are seeing, you know, collections that are kind of dying. I mean, I, I, I think you see a lot of that. And to what Travis said, sometimes a novel virus um, can wreak the most damage. And that's why you know, they're saying that this coronavirus was a novel coronavirus, basically started another animal. And when they say novel, our body's never seen it before. So you're less apt or able to kind of deal with it. Brad Clark asked, has NIDA been found in South American snakes and lizards also in North America? Um, I don't know of any confirmed cases that it has been um, other than, well, let me rephrase. In the wild, no. Um, there have been cases where it has been detected in captive colubrids. Uh, I've heard corn snakes, but I also heard it was very benign and there was pretty much no yes, result. Uh, so the, okay. the thing, and I, I would say that um, most species have their own versions of, and NIDO again as a coronavirus, most species have their own versions of said virus and not in every mm -hmm. species does it cause issues like it. We're seeing it in the pythons. Is that something you put up, Travis? Yeah, so this is a figure that I took from another paper. All of these animals tested positive for NIDO, in, you know, through either a PCR test or um, an immunofluorescence test. And, you know, if you look at the bottom down there, you know, Lampropeltis, you've got, you know, these other colubrid disease, the lycodons and stuff. Those animals had it, but as you can see by either the, the clear square, there's no disease in them, or mm -hmm. there's just no available data on whether or not they showed any kind of disease. So none of the colubrids seem to show any, does any disease capacity from having been infected. Um, interestingly, retics also don't seem to have it when they are infected and most of the boas that tested positive don't seem to show any kind of disease symptomology. Um, and then 
another interesting spot, those two groups that are circled. Mm -hmm. Three animals in those groups are each from different collections, but so like G58, G47, and G59, those three animals are in one collection. And you can see it's the same virus between those three animals, but the disease manifestation is different. Completely different, yeah. So, you know, the Antaresia and the Regius, they didn't have any real symptomology, but the Viridus did. And then in that other group, the Viridus had severe disease. If I remember the paper correctly, that Viridus ended up having, ended up having, ended up dying. The, uh, the Angolan had mild disease and the Spilota had nothing. So it, it's just another indicator there that the virus can cause different levels of disease depending on the species that it affects. Yeah. And what about Asian lizards? Uh, haven't heard any Asian lizards, but there is a strain that has been detected in shinglebacks. Okay, I've heard of that. Yeah. Very poorly characterized. I can't find a complete genome for that one. So it's just a fragment that they're able to test for. And that fragment is that same that same large fragment that all of these species seem to share. Gotcha. Interesting. Our uh, our resident Aussie, Mr. Scott Iper, has joined us this evening in the chat. And he just wanted to throw out a couple of facts real quick. That Again, there you go. The, um, uh, my mind is... Lolombinia Georgiasi. Which is the Bellinger River turtle. He says that 99% of them were gone at one point. Um, he also made reference to the, um, the bearded dragon virus that Dan spoke about earlier. Was most, There you go. Yeah. So bearded dragon adenovirus was unknown of Australia in both wild and captive animals until about the same time the bloody leatherbacks turned up here in captivity. It is now causing significant issues in the wild. So... That's a situation where obviously that mystic portal in Germany somehow managed to have a backflow and animals from outside of Australia randomly appeared in the mystic portal and they brought with them something nasty because they would deal with a completely naive population. It's crazy. It is. It's insane. My phone's almost dead. Yeah. Uh, I know Travis has been up since the wee hours of the morning. So, I mean, if y'all want to, y'all got to run, you know, feel free. Yeah, I'm probably going to have to crash out here soon because being up since 4.30 is starting to catch up. Yeah. yeah. We really, really appreciate you guys coming on. It's a pleasure. It's nice to meet you, Dale. And Travis, I love you. Not a problem, you know, and obviously I've thrown out that people can reach me. I'm sure that there will be comments. I will try and address them if I see them on the feed, but I can't guarantee I'll be able to get to it in a timely manner just because the world is what the world is. <laughs> yeah. As always, much appreciated. And Dale, it was awesome to have you on as well. well thank you. Enjoy um, a lot of really good information coming in. Thank you guys very much for having me. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Good night. So. Uh, where am I?
while they may be done, me and Phil are not. I still got. Keep the, we keep the party going despite how morbid the topic is. <laughs> yep. Um, but, I mean, honestly, I think this is probably one of the best episodes we've done so far. You know, I would concur. I'm really glad Travis hit me up and was like, hey, we heard some information recently on Nido that was very wrong, so... Can we please do an episode that basically says yeah. we're the people that should be giving out the facts about it, not people with uh, completely like anecdotal and wrong information. Yeah. So, and I, I really uh, love talking with Travis because I mean he really is one of us, and he's awesome. You know, his, his passion for the animals and his expertise in his field, it, he can he can break it down for a moron like me and, and laymanize it, and we get it. And that's 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 the best part of it, because I don't care how many times you read a paper, how many times you look at, at, at numbers and graphs. And it, it, it's overwhelming. You're going to so, have questions, too. You're going to have questions. Right. Exactly. You're going to need clarification. Yeah, like that whole cross species thing that that came into my head when we saw it um, at the lecture at Carpet Fest. And as in depth as that lecture was, it still was it's still it's hard to compute all that information. And especially right. as a normal dude like myself. So it's awesome. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it was a good, I'll, I definitely have to get in touch with Dale and talk about the ivermectin thing more. Cause I'm, I'm anxious. I'm curious to try that, you know, especially cause that green tree, like I said, moved into a bigger tub, seemed to be doing all right. I offered food, he refused. And then I kind of took a closer look at him and he's a little phlegmy. So I was like, son of a bitch. Yeah. So he's back in the smaller tub. Um, and that was my first thing too, was like up the heat, throw more heat on it, dry it out. You know? and, right. Um, you know, hopefully I caught it early enough to be able to kind of have it turn around and, and sort of right the ship in a sense. Uh, yeah. And we'll see. So, well, it's also like one of the things that we were talking about is we've all had animals that we've lost through some kind of respiratory issue. Sad to say, you know, you, when you do it as long as we have, when you have as many animals as we have, it's bound to happen. It's going to happen. And you know, it is inevitable. You right. cannot avoid it. If you're in this hobby for any extended amount of time, you are going to lose animals. Right. And doubt. we don't take it lightly. And maybe we become desensitized to a certain degree where, you know, we, we don't feel the same way we do the first time it happened, per se. But we still love these animals. We still care about these animals. We still want the best for these animals, despite our inability to, to really fix certain things. Um, one of the worst ones I ever had was one of my big, big giant breeder, the Boone Vipers, that was oof, almost 15 years old. And it got respiratory from, honestly, from my neglect. Uh, it had wrecked its tub pretty bad, and I didn't know it. And it was, again, breathing in its own urates. And it just got worse and worse. And the vets that I spoke to, because no one wants to take an almost six foot, you know, there you go. Travis says thanks again for having us on. Awesome, Trav. We love you. Um, again, nobody, no, no vet, at least in my area, wants to take on a, a five and a half, six foot. Oh, hell yeah. That I is wouldn't. as big as your calf, you know, around. And, why wound up doing Batril injections uh, and Hendog helped me. And it was actually Hendog's Batril, believe it or not. And uh, it showed promise and improvement and then it passed. And 
no one ever told me about ivermectin. And I well, really, I've, I've always used it for mites. I've never used it for anything yeah. else. I've always used no it as purely as like an insecticide in a sense. Yeah. And even then, like I said, it's very easy to overdo it. It's a drug that that should make pretty much anybody using it nervous, unless you have someone like a legitimate doctor telling you this is what your your dosage should be. Right. Like, that is not a medication. That is not a you know something to to you know uh, basement doctor basement right. vet you know use because it will like you will kill your snake. It it will happen. You know, it, it yeah. really doesn't, a little bit goes a very long way. It is incredibly, you know, potent. Yes. But it works. I mean, it works great. It kills mites. But, you know, it also, when you make it in a solution, it doesn't have a great shelf life. Um, you have to keep it in a dark because if it gets exposed to light, it ruins it. Uh, you know, so, I mean, it does, it does work really well. I've never heard or even thought of using it in terms of, like, bacterial or, you know, you know, napalming pretty much anything. Right. That's wrong with the snake, be it worms or virals or bacteriums. <clears throat> um, yeah, but that's mostly because I've just everything I've read, I've, I've never, it's never been put in that context of using it in that way. So, but the whole, I mean, the whole thing with like the conjure did get the gears turning and it did. I started writing an article today to fill up some pages in this new issue, which is going to be late um, by a couple days. Uh, basically, it's saying like, the whole debate of you know natural setups versus simple setups and whatnot and you know bigger cages make a make for a happier animal it's like i've seen this multiple times in contours it really doesn't you know i have a male biak that i moved him into a bigger a bigger tub because i thought you know it was time and went off food and just overall just i could tell just wasn't wasn't jiving it wasn't working moved him back into the smaller tub darkened it up covered it up and lo and behold we're completely back to normal. And so that was the same thing with this recent chondro. Moved into a bigger tub. Because I was like, you know, why not? It was in its quarantine tub still. <clears throat> uh, just because that size actually worked out. And I don't... It's stupid of me to, to upgrade it. Because you really didn't necessarily need it. Um, and that ties into the whole, like, doing things for your comfort versus theirs. Right, uh, right. You know, and the whole just... Basically, the article's talking about do what, what works for that species. If a species does better in a smaller tub, you know, that's simple and isn't naturalistic and full of isopods and dirt and whatever else, then that's the way you should keep it. Yeah. If it's a species that requires that, then do that. Like, it's just, it's not so cut, cut, or, cut and dry, you know. It's, I'm just, I'm tired of that debate and I'm tired of people saying I should be keeping contros in an oversized enclosure with plants and sticks and all that shit. And it's like, they, I just, I, it's not how I'm going to do it because I know how they work, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I totally get it. Same with baby birds. Like baby birds, I find that they're when they're when they're young, they're fairly picky. They're very shy eaters. If you have them in like a tub on a shelf, they're probably not going to eat right off the bat. If you're in the room. But in a rack where it's dark and you just drop feed it and leave it, it's going to be gone in no time. It's just one of those yeah. things where it's like you just have to do what works for, for that species. And even further from that, you know, what works best for that animal. Yeah. Um, Mike Cubbin says, this is why Phil hates chondros. <laughs> I don't hate chondros. In fact, you can ask uh, Billy Hunt and Dominique that I'm very, I'm highly, highly contemplating getting a chondro in the near future. How was your weekend at Billy's? My weekend at Billy's was... I'm sad a, I couldn't be there. It was a fucking project getting there. 
but it was, a, it was a wonderful time. I Okay, so it takes me realistically about two hours and 40 minutes to get from my house to Billy's, okay? Maybe three hours if it's if, if traffic's thick. Um, I hit an accident. Not me, but I got to an accident on the Florida Turnpike, and I got to it relatively quickly after it happened, so I wasn't that far back in line, so to speak. And I think Justin's frozen. Yep, yep, Justin's frozen. Well, I'll keep telling the story. So there was like a seven-car pileup with a semi-truck. The only vehicle that didn't look like a rolled-up ball of tinfoil was the semi. And I watched Tramahawk land twice at that crash. And there was like seven or eight rescues and a bunch of fire engines. And it was pretty bad. Um, And then I cleared it. And then I kept going. And then I hit uh, an area called Yeehaw Junction where uh, Highway 60 intersects with the Florida Turnpike. And there was five accidents at that intersection. And I got stuck for another hour and a half, almost two hours. And I watched that same trauma hawk land three more times. So very, very bad news for those people. But instead of it being a three hour drive, it was almost like a six hour drive. But I made it there and we had a grand old time. Billy Hunt is a breathtaking, amazing person. And Casey Gannon, he drove down and he met us and uh, we had an awesome time. We drank, we played with snakes, we BS'd and uh, yeah. It was good times. And Justin Smith just commented that his power went out. So uh, I think this might be the end of the show because I don't have the ability to post pictures or comment to people. So, yep, Justin just said, Phil, you're going to have to close this one out. So I would like to thank everyone for joining us tonight on Snakes and Stogies, episode 54, The Nido Talks, or something like that. It's episode 54. And uh, Justin apologizes. He was very happy to have all of you fine folks listen and comment and watch. And thank you again to to Dale and Travis for giving us their expertise. And uh, we look forward to chatting with all of you uh, next week. Same snake time, same stogie channel, something like that. I don't know. My name is Phil. I like snakes. Fucking Century Link. That's all I got to say. Signing off for myself and Justin Bear Eye, King of the South Smith. Thank you, everybody. Good night.